0: I'm totally not SSHing into my machine right now for for stuff. Okay, I think I'm ready. First time in a while we've actually had uh, everything good. See, days like today are days when I could really use it's a tiling window manager. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that was all right. Okay, so now to do three, two, one, zero. We all ready? Yep. Yes. Three, two, one, zero. 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 Ooh, that was pretty good. <laughs>
0: Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 356.5. Livestream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. We're in the Mintcast channel in IRC at irc.spotchat.org. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram, Discord, Facebook, or post directly at mintcast.org. This is Leo and with me today is joe hello tony hughes hi guys josh hey how you doing moss yes i am and new regular mike hello we're recording on sunday march 7th 2021 in our intersection we talk compression and finally the feedback and a couple suggestions All right. Well, then let's move into linux innards. You know, we're not making horrible time on this show. So in this section, we wanted to talk about compression, what that means to us, what we use it for. Uh, I know Josh and I have been banging our heads against all of this stuff in general to just, you know, figure out some ways to do compression in general and figure it all out. Um, But uh, just kind of wanted to go through all of us and see, take our temperature. On, uh, uh, on, on compression in general. So, Joe, what do you use compression for?
2: Well, not much really. I mean, I do use compression, but not for like files and things. Um, I, I will use compression over SSH, and that's about it. But I did do some file compression just for testing purposes to bring onto the show. Okay, well, hold on. Um, but before you
0: get onto that then, now I'm curious, what do you do SSH-wise for compression?
2: When you're using s s h f s it's actually really helpful to use uh, tax capital c at the end in order for there to be compression so you don't get latency when you're doing things like um watching videos. ah so one
0: of the things though that uh that I think is happening that if you're if you're deciding to use compression in general that uh that most people may not know is that it's very cpu intensive to do that so uh, you know normally you would just be sending the file or the media stream or whatever it is over sshfs which is already cpu intensive because you're encrypting it and then you're adding on a little bit you know for benefit right i mean you get better uh better latency on that but you're also asking your cpu hey so encrypt it but also compress it so basically take out all the redundant information in that stream and uh and send it and then on the other end you have to piece it all back together so same with encryption right. over there. So it is a CPU intensive thing, but uh, but the benefit usually outweighs the uh, the the extra one degree Celsius that
2: your CPU sits at. And it's the same thing with um, X11 forwarding. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So good if point. I'm forwarding an application from my server to my laptop, then it's good to have compression there just for the vagaries of the connection. Yeah. Very good point. And yes, you're adding more overhead for the CPU but you're limiting the overhead for your network connection. Exactly, exactly. And
0: for uh, for those that don't know, X11 forwarding is basically, say you have two computers, you're on one computer, the other one is seven miles away. You want to launch Firefox on that, uh, on that machine seven miles away. Uh, X11 forwarding will allow you to launch Firefox and you see it on the computer right in front of you. But yet... Firefox is running on that machine way over there. So if you download something, it would download to that machine and seven miles away, not to your local machine. So um, this is just a way to get a GUI, essentially, on a remote machine.
2: Yeah, but when it came to um, compression of files locally, I did attempt to um, compress my home drive even with elevated privileges, um, I still was running into permission problems as root, uh, so I don't know what the issue was there. Could not get a compressed version of my home folder to do a comparison between the two. So I went down to the command line and did a targz on um, my downloads folder, which was at the time sitting at like 58.8 gig, and it ended up at like 55 gigabytes the compressed version so all in all uh what 3.8 gigs worth of savings so i i don't really see how useful that would be but that's just me
0: well i think for archival purposes right i mean you just want a copy of that uh just in case you delete a file or something like that you can tar gz it uh into a little file and then stick it on an external drive to you know
2: pick at it one day if you need yeah then you only have to move one file instead of you know an entire file table right exactly exactly
3: right and it it depends too on what um compression setting you used for uh tar gz because there's one through nine so if you use nine it's the most compressed and one is the least so mm. i don't know what the default is
2: yeah i don't either okay well tony yeah well
1: a bit like joe i did a test i don't regularly uh compress files about the main thing i'll use it for is if i'm sending multiple files to uh, over uh, email and then it's uh, it's easier to gather them all into a folder compress them and then stick them on an email but that's about the main thing i use it for going down the other way if i'm downloading photos off google photos if you download more than one that automatically Um, puts them into a zip folder that you have to uncompress once they've downloaded. But that's a different story. But anyway, I used uh, the GUI to run tar.gz on uh, my uh, desktop folder, which was uh, 40.3 gig, and a bit like Joe. I I stuck it on one of my four terabyte drives that have got a couple of terabytes free. Uh, So I haven't exactly got a space issue at the moment, so this was just a test. I did a little bit better than Joe. It compressed it down to 33.3 gig, so it was a saving of around 7 gig. I think it depends on what the files you've got in in the folder and how compressed they were already or whether they're in a compressible format. Because I know video and some photo formats has, they're already so compressed, you're not going to get much difference when you when you run compression software on them. But uh, it was uh, I was interested to note that the seven gig I saved was actually bigger than the uh, hard drive I had on the my first Windows proper Windows P- PC back in 1998. I had a six gig hard drive in that, so seven gig was larger than that. And uh, six gig back in the day was uh, a useful amount of storage. Not now. <laughs> but, yeah, that was my experience. I so probably won't use it because, uh, like I say, I've got a couple of uh, uh, four terabyte uh, backup drives that I use, and uh, so space isn't a major issue. The one thing that um, was just said about uh, bringing everything together in one folder can be useful when you're zipping
4: things, but that's about it. Boss, what about you? Well, I keep most of my files that most people keep in home on an external drive, so there wasn't much in my home folder to compress. In fact, my home folder was only 1.5 gigabytes. Running compression, the resulting files were each 1.7 gigabytes. I ran both tar.gz and tar.7z for comparison with no difference. I gained 200,000 bytes by compressing it. Uh, maybe I should check compression on my external, but I'm not sure I have room anywhere for a file that would hold all that. Yeah, that's, that's
0: one that really baffled me. There's got to be something going on in the background because I've never, ever seen something
4: compress but yet get bigger. So, oh, <laughs> <Well, laughs> I had that happen a lot actually, in the Windows yeah. days.
2: Uh, the, the smaller files don't compress or
4: actually uncompress.
2: Right. But then you have to give them a wrapper that is specifically for the compression software. So if it's an uncompressible file, it's going to be larger.
0: That's that's just crazy to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I could see that with text files that are less than a, that, than a kilobyte or something like that. Maybe the compression to, uh, to mark a file uh, the way that 7-zip or whatever.
4: It's like Joe said, Leo, if a file is not compressible, they will not compress it and then put a wrapper around it to say it's been compressed. And so the wrapper makes it larger.
0: Huh. Huh. Interesting.
4: All right. Now, my SDB, my external main drive is 512 gig with only 145 gig free, so I'm not sure I want to try compression on
3: that because there's not much room. Josh, how did you do? I, uh, I didn't really get to test a lot on my new system, so most of this stuff is from my uh, Ryzen 5 uh, 2600. Most of my tests, well, all of my tests were on my uh, dot image backups of my NVMe uh, drive that has Windows on it. And uh, that has about 506 gigabytes of data. Um, I used part clone and uh, dd to get the image, and then I used pigz to compress it. Uh, I tried both 7z and uh, gzip, and uh, both of those took way too long to compress. So I didn't even like bother. They were over five hours um, to compress that file. So I said eh, I'm not going to worry about it because no one's going to do that. I mean that's like. That's ridiculous. Uh, out of my tests, I actually also used uh, RescueZilla as a, another uh, form of uh, backing up. That won the uh, speed for the uh, compression and, and backing up everything. That was about 55 minutes for uh, the 506 gigabytes. Uh, the compressed size was the same as using part clone plus pig Z, which is basically what rescuezilla uses under the hood to do all of uh, its uh, imaging final s- file size was 383 gigs so that's quite a bit of savings um there's a lot of text files and stuff in windows and all that stuff and uh, i had several games installed and that has a lot of text files so that all can be compressed fairly uh fairly easily I'm not sure exactly what the uh, commands are that that uh, Rescuezilla uses, but it must use some options to make it a little faster. Because, like I said, part clone plus pigz is um, what I used uh, in, in Linux itself, and it, and it got a little bit less, uh, a little more time on it. Uh, when I used that, I got 57 minutes instead of 55. So it, it's it's negligible, really. It's only a couple minutes, so. Uh, but the compressed size was exactly the same uh, for both Rescuezilla and uh, PartClone plus PigZ. The uh, command I used was PartClone.ntfs tac c tac s dev nvme whatever your drive is. Uh, piped it through uh, PigZ tac nine, um, and then you put in your uh, the directory for the uh, the image file. That's the yeah. That's what I used for PartClone. Then with uh, DD plus Pig Z that came in third, and that was an hour and thirty-eight minutes. Now I don't know why DD versus Part Clone was so much different in the time because I'm still using Pig Z, so that shouldn't have mattered as far as that goes. So it had to be DD that was making it longer oh, yeah, uh, for it the is. time. The the reason
0: is Part Clone does not write zeros; it does not write empty space, but DD uh, does. Because okay. DD is, uh, I mean, it's it's quite dumb. It does exactly what you tell it to do. You tell it to image a, you know, a section of right. the disk or the entire disk or whatever. And it's like, all right, one, zero, one, zero, 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 zero. Like Part clone would just, right. it would skip the thousand zeros. Mm-hmm. DD will write every single one of them.
3: And uh, yeah, Part clone. yeah, also you do the .ntfs or whatever file system you use. So maybe that also helps. Well, it already it knows what file system it's trying to image. So yeah, I can definitely see where that would be a problem. So yeah the compression size was a little larger as well with dd plus pigz which is it was a uh, 387 gigabytes so again negligible not that big of a difference but still if you want to save a little bit then that uh that will help a little bit to use um rescuezilla or uh partclone so the command i used for dd would be uh dd equals your drive dev nvme whatever then i piped it through PV to see what the um, the progress was, and then I piped that through Pig Z, TAC9, and then the image that is going to spit out. As I said, um, the 7Z took too long to really do anything, and I'm not exactly sure why, because when I did that with 7Z, where I did part clone plus 7Z, it would only use one thread. 7Z is supposed to be multi-threaded, and I confirmed that when I actually tried to compress a folder that I had on my um, on my external hard drive, and that seemed to use all of the, um, all the cores and it didn't take very long at all. It was like a 30 gigabyte file and it took maybe like two minutes or whatever. I don't know exactly. It wasn't that long. So I'm assuming that 7z would have been close to Pig Z plus part clone a little bit, I, I would imagine. So yeah, and as far as uh, Gzip. I wouldn't even use that for anything that's larger than maybe like 10 gigs it would take probably too long personally for me. So uh yeah that was that was pretty much everything I did. I mainly focused on my backups rather than the exact uh compression, but I like to compress my backups cuz why have a 500 gig file when you could have a 380 some gig file? That's quite a bit of savings especially when you're doing this what? uh your your fifth backup is free right you you buy four backups yeah. you get the fifth free when you <laughs> <Exactly>. use compression <laughs> exactly <laughs> so yeah yeah especially when I keep monthly uh, a monthly of these I keep at least two and then the third one I'll get rid of as uh, after I make the uh the uh third uh backup so yeah it does save me quite a bit on my uh storage but uh anyway yeah so I guess Leo it's your turn well how did yeah. you fare
0: well I will say that on the rescuezilla thing um I, I just could not believe how fast it was. That was the biggest thing for me. My, my, my system was not nearly as big as when I was on Linux User Space. We were doing uh, KDE Neon. That was about the time that we were talking about doing a show like this. And so uh, I think it was about a 16 gig install with all my software and a couple of recordings on it. Uh, so it wasn't a whole lot, but uh, RescueZilla was able to do that. And Josh, what did I tell you? It was like five or six minutes. It yeah, an definitely. Entire... Like,
3: I think it was closer to five. It was really yeah. fast.
0: It was insane how fast that was. Um, so it was able to take an entire uh, copy of my partition. It was able to compress it down. I think it saved me about two and a half gigs. It was it was fifteen some fifteen and change, and then it was like thirteen point two gigs after uh, after everything. So I mean, what is that like a fifteen percent reduction in size? I mean, and that's that's give or take uh, what you saw with you know five hundred gigs to three hundred eighty three gigs. I mean, it's a lot of savings. That you get and the fact that rescuezilla does it out of the box they use uh, as you mentioned part clone and pig z it's great by default those are the ones that i would recommend anybody use so just go use gzip because everybody knows what gzip is it's, it exists in every linux ever but yeah just the fact that rescuezilla was able to do that and how fast it is it's it's absolutely amazing i went a little lower level with my stuff i wanted to get my home folder or you know the important bits of any particular system which is typically your home folder and talk about how long it takes to get yourself a backup yesterday i wanted to talk uh, i wanted to bring to the show a script but i ran out of time sometime in the future i'll be hacking away at this little by little i want a script to basically just hand out to anybody and be like hey you know you know, we, we talk about having backups all the time. Back up your stuff. Well, how do you back up your stuff? If you're doing it in the command line, it's actually kind of archaic. So I can understand why people don't do it. And a lot of times people don't realize that there are backup utilities on your machine to do that kind of thing. And I know it exists. A tool to back up your home folder is not new. Me, I just want to write a script for it. Uh, and make it interactive, right? Like what kind of compression do you want? Uh, do you want to add any additional folders? Things like that. So. But I did go through all of the manual stuff to make that work. So these are the bits that I will use in the script later. The first thing that I wanted was a way to actually monitor it. Because when you do compression, you want to uh, compress, you know, 12 folders or you want to compress an entire folder that has a bunch of stuff in it. You press enter and nothing happens. And so you sat there wondering, I wonder if it's working. I wonder. Hmm. And then, you know, 30 minutes later after your compression is done, it's like done. And you're like, thanks. I had no idea when that was going to be done. I had no idea what you were doing. There is a little program in most Linuxes called Progress. I think um, Josh, this is the same base as what you were using with p v yeah, I PV, think I th-
3: right. yeah. the the thing with p v is it it only looks at the file that's coming out of the thing. It doesn't look at any of the compression that's going on. Like it doesn't give you any of those stats. Mm-hmm. It'll just look at the file that's being a- exported out. Right. So uh so progress is not smart, but what it will do
0: is it will tell you the file that's being compressed right now. So, you know, if that's a twenty meg file or whatever, it'll count up like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way to twenty and tell you, all right, you know, ninety percent done, hundred percent done for that file. But if you're doing a hundred files, you don't get an overall progress. You essentially just get a running tally of how big your compressed file, the the file that you're gonna end up with how big that's going to be at the end. Yeah, it's not one nice, cool, gooey little thing that goes across and tells you exactly when it's going to be done. But it does give you an idea of what's happening and that it's still working. I think that's the biggest thing, right? Just don't tell me nothing because otherwise I'm going to think it's broken and I'm going to cancel it. So, <laughs> uh, so progress is important. Uh, I show you how to install it and how to run it. So progress basically just looks into your system for anything that's currently running that uses something like TAR, or 7z or anything like that so it will it will just monitor your system and if something is running then it will it will give you those stats it'll tell you how it's uh how it's going that is important if you're doing these backups and that's something that i want to integrate into the script uh once i get there what i was doing was compressing a home folder that's about 1.2 gigs i went in and specifically got rid of like all of my isos out of my downloads folder because this is yeah uh that would have made everything way way bigger I don't know that compressing ISOs is anything that anybody cares about anyway. My home folder contains all the normal junk, right? All the stuff that that you get in your cache whenever you're surfing on four different browsers. It's all the stuff that you downloaded in your downloads folder. It's all the pictures off your phone in your pictures folder. And um, yeah, everything else that ends up in videos and desktop and all that other stuff too, right? So it's a mishmash of all kinds of files. But there's a lot of pictures, like more than half of this is actually pictures. Uh, so I expected really big compression ratios, but I was uh, not pleasantly surprised to, to realize that it, it wasn't that great. That makes sense because all the pictures are JPEG anyway, so they're already compressed. So you know I was silly going into it, not realizing that those are compressed in the first place. Anyway, I did XZ, GZ, BZ2, and 7-Zip. These are the most common uh, compressions that I have seen around the Internet. I had the highest hopes for XZ. Because most everything that, you know, the, the new hotness is XZ. Every, everybody's starting to put their stuff in XZ because it has, at least reportedly, the highest compression ratios of all of the compressions. And that actually turned out to be pretty true. I've got the command that I ran. Uh, you can actually use it directly in tar. So when you see those big scary tar commands, it's like C, Z, X, J, L, M, N, o, p. Those... Yeah, that's this. But here's the cool thing. I've got a example command in there to where all you do is change the path to where you want the file to go. And that's it. You press enter on it. And it will create you a, um, a, a backup of your home directory. And I think that's, that's really cool. So you can take that and, and adjust that. But eventually, like I said, I want to make this into a script. So it was done in about five minutes. This was the most depressing part about this is that XE is slow. It was five times slower than GZ, two times slower than BZ2. It was six times slower than 7-Zip, and it was um, – I, I got to do the math here – 10 times slower than Pigs PigZ. Pig so, yeah, if you if speed is number one in your mind, XZ ain't it, man. <laughs> it ain't it. But it did give me the second-best compression ratio out of all of them. I had a 1.2-gig home folder. And that that came down to about 1.1 gigs. They all came out to about 1.1 gigs. So much so that um, I couldn't tell you 1.1 gigs, 1.0 gigs, you know, 0.9 gigs. No, no, no. I had to break it down to the bytes. You can see the difference between each of the compressions. So it was a pretty close call with this. So, I mean, it's really, if like, if you're on the cusp of, you know, I really need the extra space savings. All right, cool. Go with XZ. But you know, honestly, my, my thing is going to be, yeah, just use Jeezy. So uh, with Jeezy, I did the same thing. It was done in one minute. This was, um, this is one of the fastest ones that I did. But it came out with actually the worst compression of all of them. So, yeah, that was, I wasn't happy about that. Jeezy is the most pervasive out of all of them. Uh, so, yeah, I wasn't extremely happy with that, but... I mean, it was in the same ballpark as everybody else, so it wasn't that bad. Um, BZ2, I've got the command for that, and it was done in about two and a half minutes, so it took a little longer than GZ did, but uh, it gave you a slightly better compression than GZ did as well. So another one of those things, right, where it was um, the trade-off for getting a smaller file is that it takes longer to do. And then 7-Zip. I've used 7-Zip from back in the Windows days as well, Uh, and I really enjoy 7-Zip overall. Uh, It's a really good compression. And it's really easy to handle. The command is way easier than using TAR in general. Uh, I've got an example of that in there. And outside of using the multi-core one, I think uh, the way that I used 7-Zip was not multi-core in this way. Um, It was done in 45 seconds. So it was out of the single core, not multi-threaded types, 7-Zip was the fastest. And it gave you the best compression. So this is, uh, again, it just, it reminded me why I like 7Sips so much. Best compression, best time, easiest command, hands down, it's my favorite. My absolute favorite of all of them. Overall, the idea is that, you know, it doesn't matter which one you use. They're all about the same as far as what what compression you're going to get out the other end, how much it's going to compress. They all compressed about 10% for me, which is still a good chunk of change, right? I mean, in, in, in the case of Josh, it was... Uh, buy four, get one free. In my case, it's buy nine, get one free. But that's that's kind of the idea. So, Josh and I were playing around with pigs back uh, when I was talking about that, uh, the RescueZilla stuff. Um, and so, I wanted to see how to, what I'm already doing, I want that to be faster. How do I make that work? So, TAR does not have pig Z like baked in, there's no little single letter switch to turn it on and use that kind of compression. Uh, You have to actually use the dash dash use dash compress dash program to call pig Z and then you can give it our arguments there. And the arguments I gave were uh, best compression, so dash dash best, and recursive. So, you know, don't forget to go inside the folders too. So uh, from there, the the rest of the command is the same as uh, all the other ones. But this went from, this cut the compression time in half. So I was able to get um, a GZ, a, a GZ archive out in 30 seconds compared to one minute at, with the regular GZ. Um, but what was even weirder was that uh, by using the best compression ratio, I, I ended up with a bigger file than just going straight tar GZ. That was weird. I don't know why. It, and it, it's not a big difference. It was about a, a difference of one megabyte. So I don't think unless you go down and actually care, you wouldn't have noticed. But, you know, I'm caring, so I didn't notice. Uh, That was weird. But overall, PIGS was the fastest of them all. It even beat 7-Zip, but I think uh, I need to go back and ask 7-Zip to be multi-threaded, and then I need to do a head-to-head against uh, Pig z versus 7-Z uh, to see which one comes out on top. But overall, I'm sold on G-Zip. I mean, yeah, you get a slightly worse compression ratio, but, I mean, it's the fastest that you can get outside of 7-Zip. And 7-Zip isn't native. So, uh, G-Zip being native, being one of the fastest, still giving you a really good compression ratio. I mean, it's the worst, but, I mean, it's still really good. That, I think, really sells me on it. There'll always be a soft spot in my heart for 7-Zip, but, um, yeah, Pigs uh, is great. I, I, can't, I can't really find much, much wrong with it
4: yeah most people don't want to sit around waiting for two hours for their compression to happen
0: <laughs> right so I mean, yeah, seven zip and pigs actually works the best on that one, but uh pigs was the hardest to put together in a command to do what all the other ones did you know essentially natively so that that was the that was the only thing I didn't like about pigs was that it's it's more difficult to use than anything else
3: Well, with pig z it, it's actually not it's not that hard if I, i'm I see you use tar and all that, but you don't even have to use tar. You can just use pigz. Oh, no. yeah, you can just use pigz. The same commands you can use to use um, gzip. If you use pigz and then you point it to, well, you put like if you want the most compression and everything first, then point it to the file you want it to compress or the folder space and then point it to the file that you're going to kick out of it. And that's it. Well, that that
0: works for, and, and so gzip works that way as well. Um, mm-hmm. But... Yeah, and you could do that to a single file. The problem is when you encounter a directory. Oh, right, That's right. That's why okay. you need tar in that. You need tar to put it into a nice one file, and right. then pigs
3: will go and compress right. that. Right, now I see what you're doing. See, I, I didn't have to do that because I was doing, I was already doing dd. Right. And, okay. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, I was, just, I was just curious to see why you did that, but now I know. All right.
0: So, yeah, just a little bit more difficult. But, I mean, if you're, if you're curious to use Pig Z, have got the command in here that I use to, uh, to create it. So you could really just copy and paste and then at the very end change where I saved my file, change it to wherever you want to save your file, and then everything else is just uh, – it's, it's easy from there. I didn't run into any of the permissions issues. That only has to do with ownership. I don't know who owns files in your home directory. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's, that's, what the, that's what those are stemming from. Anyway, uh, long live GZip. What can I say? It's fantastic. But from here, uh, that'll do it for our compression chat. If you're, if you're curious, uh, if you're trying to compress stuff, you have questions or anything like that, feel free to just write in, let us know, and we can help you compress and archive and do all that kind of fun stuff to your stuff too. Anyway, we'll head down to Vibrations from the ether.
5: Email from Lee. Who wants to handle this one? I'll read it to uh, celebrate my new stable Wi-Fi connection that I have. Yay! All right, so Lee says, "Hi, Mintcast guys. I was listening to one of your podcasts, and you were talking about the browser you currently use. I was a bit surprised no one mentioned LibreWolf as an option. LibreWolf is a fork of Firefox, and I have found it to be much more secure out of the box. You don't have to change a laundry list of options in About Config." to get a very secure browsing experience. It is all set for you. You can get LibraWolf from Libra, uh, excuse me, LibraWolf-community.gitlab.io. I use the app image on Linux Mint in Debian 10 XFCE and it works great. You might want to give it a spin and mention it on your show. While I also use Brave and love it, I think having two browsers built off of differing browser engines is a smart move. Thanks for all the hard work in outing together an informative and entertaining show lee i've never actually heard of libra before but i do agree with lee that having uh, two different browsers built off of differing browser engines is a smart smart idea um, i do that with firefox and brave currently but how about you guys have you ever heard of or tried out libra wolf yet
0: while you were reading that i downloaded the app image and uh set it to executable and ran it now i don't know if it must, it must. Um, it has UBlock Origin out of the box. That's nice. Wow, really? Yeah, but I mean, everything yeah. else just feels like Firefox. Um, yeah. There's also a flat pack. Oh, cool. So yeah, and actually, that's that's better than the app image unless you have uh, unless it tries to self update and it'll grab the app image itself. Um, yeah, the flat pack may be the better way to do that. So uh, yeah, just check in uh, software manager in Linux Mint to try it out. The the one concern that I would have is if Libra Wolf stays as up-to-date, or how long does it take? When Firefox puts out an update, how long does it take for Libra Wolf to to come out with that? And, you know, the answer to that question is... I have a
4: question on that, too, Leo, because it says it's compiled directly from the latest build of Firefox Stable. Now, is that just regular Firefox, or is that
0: ESR? Uh, It's regular Firefox, so I'm on it now. It's, It's 86, So, and that goes to my point. 86 was released just a couple of days ago... Uh, let me see, yeah, created one week, let me find out, I have to actually find out, this is an interesting interesting question, let me see, so Firefox, 86, what day was that released, that looks to be released, February 23rd, so it looks like it takes the folks at LibreWolf about a week to put out theirs, because it looks like 86.0-1 was created one week ago, February 27th. So seven, six, five, four, that's four days. Takes them four days to put out a, uh, a new version. So that's really my only concern with these, is that you're stuck four days without the updates. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, unless it is security stuff that still makes it into LibreWolf. So, I mean, you're stuck four extra days with those bugs. That's assuming you upgrade Firefox the moment they come out. And I tend to... If I see a Firefox update, I'm accepting that because I usually like to see the new features and stuff. But, I mean, overall, no telemetry. Uh, defaults to DuckDuckGo. Adblock is included. Uh, there's a firewall extension. Um, so we've seen that the updates take about four days extra. And everything is, uh, you know, obviously everything is open source, right? I mean, Firefox is open source except for, like, Pocket and some of the other uh, stuff that they add. Uh, Librewolf strips all that out. So if you're one of those uh, Firefox haters that's like ah, I don't like Pocket, I can't believe they did Pocket. Uh, LibreWolf doesn't add Pocket, so <laughs> that might be something that you're interested in. Uh, really cool, really cool overall. So thanks for writing in, Lee. Uh, it's a good project. I'm gonna keep my eye on it. It is nice. Um, you don't get Firefox Sync or any of the Firefoxy stuff like that. So I mean, it is. It think of it like Firefox but raw, and has uh, uBlock Origin and a firewall built in. So that's that's really cool. So, appreciate that, Lee. Thanks.
5: Are you able to access About, conf- uh, about Config through uh, Wolf?
0: Ooh, I closed it. Let me open it back up, and I will.
5: Uh, what do you want me to look for? Uh, just to see if they have, like, the so kind of the new stuff that Firefox has added in terms of security, like first-party isolate, things of that nature. Just want I, to see how they have it set by default.
0: Uh, let me see. Tell me where to go, and I will, I will go there. Uh, if
5: you... Uh, yeah, if you just do the about config and then start searching for oh, see, uh, first party isolate. First, is that all one word? Party? Isolate. Yep, first party isolates all together. And it should, if it's in there, it should give you a listing.
0: Okay, privacy.firstparty.isolate is set to false. Uh, pri- oh, okay. Privacy uh, block post message is false, but restrict opener access is true and use site is false.
5: Okay, so that's kind of cool, though. So you can still at least access about config and, and oh, make yeah. changes in there the same way you would with vanilla Firefox. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Interesting The Flatpak project. is not
3: on FlatHub, so it's a little bit oh. harder to install. So you've got to go add another Flatpak yeah, repo. Yeah, it's, it's a little confusing. I'm working on it right now.
0: <laughs> let me see. Installation. Uh, so let me see if I can find Flatpak. Uh, set up Flatpak, download the Flatpak. Oh, you just have to, oh, okay, no, it handles it, I think. Yeah, you just download the Flatpak. Let's save this and see what happens. What happens if I just click on it? Flatpak. Oh, pff. <laughs> No. Uh, I don't know if that's a, oh, Flatpak doesn't, maybe I've broken it. Isn't Flatpak supposed to just run? Maybe not.
3: When you, When you do what?
0: When you double click on it. Oh, yeah, it should. Yeah, maybe if I run it with the software manager. Let me try that. Does that do it? anything happening oh wait wait okay no I think software manager choked on it I <laughs> might have to do it manually I don't know we'll see how it goes um but yeah okay so we'll come back to this one I'm I'm this is interesting at least at the very least it's interesting
4: yeah, yeah I've got it coming. downloaded I'm gonna play with it some too but cool cool all right shall well, we move uh, along
0: we shall so sit I'll take this one
4: oh go ahead go ahead why not I mean everyone else is talking give me a chance Sid32 on 355.5 on Reddit says AirDroid is an outdated app. The cool kids are using Join by Joao to send commands to Tasker to open an FTP server on the phone.
0: That's pretty cool. So I think this is in, uh, in response to one of the things that I said the other day, which was I had an old Samsung Note 3 that I use AirDroid on to, uh, to transfer files between here, you know, a machine and, and there. It's got a web interface, so that, that is pretty interesting. Um, I hadn't looked into this, but this is interesting. So, But it, it sounds more like a servery style thing. So join by uh, Tasker and join.
4: It oh, sounds like a Brazilian thing. There aren't too many countries that use Joao as a name.
0: Yeah, so this is interesting. Um, this is something I'll have to dive into, but I haven't messed with yet. So uh, I do have, um, I still have a Nexus 7 kicking around that I need to move some files from. And I don't have AirDroid on it. I guess uh, AirDroid may be defunct. Um, so I'll, yeah, I'll try to start moving files around with Join. Thanks, Sid.
4: Let me grab Captain Obvious and leave John Wallace for you. All right. Captain Obvious 110 on 354.5 on Reddit. Bunsen Labs or Puppy Linux for low-spec machines. And this, MOS
0: was actually in, in response to you because this is the one where you were, uh, the episode, Everyone's Got an Opinion, where you were talking about um, how you deal with distros and stuff.
4: So well, I, I think love is... me some puppy. Yeah. I, I probably mentioned Fossa Pup at one point or another, and I've been playing with EasyOS, too, which is another puppy from the creator of Puppy, Barry Cowler.
0: Very cool. So make sure to add those to your list if you're, uh, if you're browsing. And now, drum roll, please. Oh, the John Wallace saga again. <laughs> dum, dum, dum So John Wallace writes in. He says, hello, Leo. I have a question regarding masking services that I need to use, but which Linus flags as unsafe, such as USB guard. Would I be able to mask those services without impairing their functionality? For example, syscontrol mask USB guard. Uh, no. So to answer that question directly, um, if you mask a service, it is off forever and cannot be turned on. So if you are expecting anything to run as part of that service, it will not. That service will not run uh, anymore after you mask it. Um, so what you can do, we're going to talk about one a little later, but any service that is um, called by Dbus will automatically turn on as long as it's not masked. So what you might want to do is uh, system control, disable USB guard. And you know, if DBus will call that, then it will just it will start whenever it needs to as opposed to starting on boot. So maybe that can help a little bit. But, yeah, to your question, nope. If you mask it, it's off and off, like off, off. But further, you know, for, specifically for USB guard, it, it does what it s- says it does. It's basically a whitelist for USB guard, for, for USB components. So you basically plug in the ones that you want, add them to the whitelist. Everything else that you plug in after that fact will not work. Um, yeah, Dbus will basically just ignore it. Um, so I've got a link, uh, to, uh, a Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7, how to kind of explaining what all USB guard is and how to configure it and do all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you're not going to configure USB guard, just turn it off, mask it, you can mask it and it'll be okay. But if you do want to increase the security of your machine and, you know, by running Linus, it sounds like you do, you know, it might not be a bad idea to actually just configure USB guard and let it run. So that was one email. He sent another in uh, the usual five services to inquire about. And um, it sounds like we're just going alphabetical. (laughs) So um, he says, here's the next batch from Linus' scan, and I would appreciate your advice. So we've got five. We've got accounts-demon, account, A-C-C-T. ACPID also dash I'm sorry, state. I couldn't hear that. It was that. demon. Demon is what I said.
3: Demon. Uh, hold,
2: hold, did you say that I did. right? Demon. Oh, absolutely. Demon. Day, de- day, de- day, de- day. De- no, Damon. day is
0: when the sun is up. Demon is for the service that runs on your Linux machine. Hmm. <laughs> well, you're allowed to be wrong. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm always wrong. And then lastly was Anacron. So in each intern, so Uh it can be safely to be disabled not masked because dbus will start it back up when it's needed so if you're running into the situation where like system uh, systemd analyze blame uh says accounts uh accounts demon is taking forever to start up it's it's usually not accounts demon but uh you can stop it from starting on startup by just disabling it so system control disable accounts dash demon and that'll disable it on startup but dbus will usually kick it back on now when would it kick it back on it's Anytime a graphical app hand, that, that handles user accounts is invoked, that's where accounts dash demon comes into play. So if you go into Linux Mint and you type in, what is it, users or something? Yeah, users and groups, the moment you do that and you authenticate, um, accounts dash demon is invoked and you're using it. So, you know, to add an account or something like that, that's where accounts dash demon really comes in comes in handy. So if you want to mask this, it's going to break your graphical user account thing configurator apps, anything that, that does uh, user control apps in the graphical user interface, those will break. Doing user add and add user and all that stuff, that won't break. Those, are, those bypass this uh, account dash daemon. So if you're never going to create another user account on your system or you know, change your current one, with the GUI apps, you're fine to mask this one. But uh, in general, most people do it in the GUI. So maybe it might not be a good idea to mask that. So it's, it's really personal preference on that. Uh, ACCT.service. Uh, you can safely disable this one. Um, and it looks like you can mask it as well without really breaking anything visible. Uh, ACCT really handles sessions and what you've done in that session. So it's more like a, a tracking thing where it tracks when you logged in, how long you stayed logged in, what commands you did during that login. And this is pretty obvious why Linus would kick off and be like, hey, this is not secure, because ACCT actually tracks everybody on the system. So getting a hold of information like that is very bad in terms of privacy and security. So it's no wonder Linus says, hey, go turn this off. Uh, so, you, But you can, you can mask this uh, without breaking anything. It's fine. Uh, but don't expect to go ask ACCT for information about sessions. Uh, it's, it's it's off, so it's not gonna it's not gonna do anything. Uh, ID, this one you need to understand it before disabling it. It handles hardware actions, so yeah, usually you just don't want to mess with this one at all. If you plug in headphones, unplug in headphones, plug in uh, uh, any kind of hardware control, right? Like your keyboard hardware controls, your laptop brightness controls, all that stuff. If you disable ID. It is no longer listening for those hardware calls, and it will just ignore them. So all of your keys are broken now. (laughs) You can turn it back on or unmask it, and it'll be fine. Yeah, no, Moss, don't change my spelling. It is demon. And no matter how many times you change it, no matter how many times you tell me, it's demon. And on top of that, it's JIF. So uh, yeah, so also state is the next one. And this is another one that you need to understand uh, before disabling. Uh, because this demon will monitor the state and settings of your sound card, so in my case, I've got like three not because I want them, but because they keep getting built into crap um my logitech webcam has a has a uh microphone, and uh my uh focus scarlet solo has a uh, microphone in and audio out my uh my little think center here has uh two audio ins and one microphone out so it's crazy if also dash state was not running it would forget where my volume was it would forget the state of the controllers as if as if uh like if i muted them or unmuted them or whatever if you don't do anything with audio you know you could probably safely disable this one and mask it as well but if you mask it also is going to start you from a blank slate every single time um so I would be wary of this one. This is one of those kind of A, B tests. Can you get by without it? Um, you should be okay. It won't, it won't like break anything that I know of, but it's, it's going to make your life a little worse off if you deal with anything audio ever. And then the last one is service. I love anacron. Anacron is my kind of cron. So cron is a service that does things when you tell it to do things, right? So like at four o'clock, I wanted to do this backup, and I wanted to do this and write this and go here and do that, right? And you tell it specifically when you want it to launch, like down to the minute you tell it when you want it to launch. Um, Anacron is my kind of cron. It's like, eh, just whenever, like after a reboot, just yeah, just whenever. We can do it whenever. So I like Anacron because it really waits until the system is not being used. And then it will kick off its update or then it will kick off its, its backup process or whatever uh, whatever that is. I personally like Anacron. I use Anacron when I need things. You know, think about it like you want your temporary files to be, um, to be emptied out after boot. But you don't want that to happen right after boot because your hard drive is being used to boot the system up and load all your software and stuff like that. So if I tell Anacron to, after a reboot, maybe like half an hour or whatever, then run that thing. But, it's, but you don't tell it, you know, exactly 30 minutes after boot you do this. No, no, no. Anacron waits for the system to be idle before it kicks off. So it could be 30 minutes. It could be 40 minutes. It could be an hour. And that's all fine for me because, you know, all I'm doing is like emptying out TMP or something like that. Uh, I don't put anything extremely important in Anacron, but I like the laziness of it. So it's important. Uh, That service is important to me. I would never mask it. But if you don't use it, and by default, I don't think a lot of things uh, exist there. Um, you can mask it. And if, you know, if things break, bring it back. But yeah, Anacron is safe to, to mask. I just wouldn't do it myself. All right. Well, that's it for uh, the John Wallace saga. I hope that answered your questions, John. I hope anybody listening to this did not fall asleep. And if you did stay awake through it, I hope it uh, kind of shone some light on some of the services that, that are you know running in the back of your machine that you may not know are there. And well, they are. So um, yeah, hopefully that was informative. So Joe, take the next one.
2: Mike F. sent me an email. Hello, Joe. Always enjoy your descriptions of dabbling with the hardware. One of these days, I'll have to dig out my soldering iron and see if it works. The recent Texas hard freeze prompted the curiosity of myself and a friend considering a move. We were wondering what level of energy-saving construction is customary or typically found. Insulation in exterior walls and attic, double-pane windows. I was surprised to see all of the burst pipes... In interior ceilings, not garages, as this is usually the warmest part of the house. By contrast, I was not surprised to see the great state of denial when watching the DFW area stations. Having been there many times on business, I was first amused, then annoyed at the perpetual demolition derby seen on the iced-up overpasses. Thanks, TXDOT. Hopefully your legislature will finally enact minimum standards for power generation and transmission operators on the grid. Texas deserves something above Walmart quality electric and Nat gas service. Good luck, Mike. Uh, And yeah, the roads are nuts here, even when they're not icy. So I did reply. Yeah, I do love me some hardware. Always good to know that other people like hearing about my tinkering. Thank you. I have a couple of headsets that I'm currently working on, but nothing too interesting. Still need to mod that arcade. As for the typical energy saving around here, double pane is very common, but it seems like the seals don't last very long at all. You can pay the extra for better insulation on the house's outer walls, but I have yet to see an attic that has insulation on the outside wall. A lot of my issues seem to be the windows and the seals around the doors. Um, I'm going to be looking into into the doors this summer. People drive like that all the time. It was rather disturbing when I first moved here, but I kind of got used to it and expect everyone to drive like five-year-olds in bumper cars. It's still terrifying that they don't adjust the driving to the conditions, though. So despite the fact that I can drive reasonably well on snow and ice, I simply don't leave the house because derp is out there. I am not sure that the legislature will um, do anything the last time this happened, the answer was it doesn't happen very often, and by the time it does happen, it will be someone else's problem. Thanks for writing in. Let me know if you spin up any projects
0: I will say uh yeah don't don't count on anything changing overall and yeah, double pane is pretty common i've got uh, I've got some double pane windows in my house uh but the the people that owned it before me didn't finish <laughs> so, uh so we're looking at yeah. at uh replacing i think it's about uh I don't know, it's about eight windows in my house that I I still need to go double pane with, and that would help out a lot. Um, The other thing is, depending on when your house was built, you may or may not have insulation on the outer walls of your house. Um, But it's not too terribly difficult to do some blow-in after the fact.
2: But still, now, I thought that was mandatory, the insulation on the outer walls, because I do have insulation on my outer walls. This house is from roughly 18, 19 years ago. Oh,
0: yeah. Well, uh, so, I mean, certainly houses exist that are 100 years old. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the older they get, the, the less regulation there was. And yeah, I mean, and, and if nobody had the nobody cared enough to come in and actually fix that, then, I mean, you just don't have it. So uh, the best you can do is uh, blow in after the fact, which I mean it does it does do pretty good. And I will say the insulation at the um, on the out on your roof, right on the inside of your roof, is is very uncommon here because houses get hot fast in the summer, and there needs to be some kind of way to let some of that hot, some of that heat out. Otherwise, you're you're really fighting it with your HVAC unit. Um, but it, it's kind of a it's kind of a half in
2: half out situation. Most roofs, they do have some kind of insulation at the top. Um, a lot of them in other mm-hmm. places, not here, of course. But then at where the roof meets the rest of the house, there's supposed to be a, a gap to allow for expansion and contraction. Right. And that would be where the heat is supposed to escape during the mm-hmm. summer when it's beating down on yeah, the house. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, I've got it. Um, I don't have much on the outer, but I do have it uh, on the ceiling, uh, right above the ceiling, essentially, to keep, to keep the rooms uh, at, a, at a decent temperature, but yeah, to let it escape on the outside. But that's yeah, another one of those things, just an old house. So things that need to be fixed.
2: But yeah, the driving here, and I know, Leo, you've probably driven through the Dallas area before. Oh, my before. God. E- even, even when the weather's good, these people are insane. Now, if
0: the, if the posted speed limit is 75, just add 20 to that, and that's what the speed limit actually is. Don't worry about the cops.
2: They're doing 95 too, and... No, if you're if you're doing the speed limit and nobody else is, that makes you right. a danger on yeah. the road, and you will be the one to get yeah, the exactly.
0: Ticket. So, um, yeah, ninety-five is, I mean, ninety ninety-five is not out of the ordinary on uh, on a typical you know three four five lane highway. So, <laughs> yeah, just you know, if you're coming to Texas, be aware of that. Uh, stay out of the left lane; people will hate you. Otherwise, if you're doing the speed limit, you better
5: be in the slow lane. That's insane! You literally drive ninety-five miles an hour on the highway there. Uh, I mean, no, don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't get in the left lane, but there are plenty of people
0: that do, and it is extremely common. Yes.
2: <laughs> and then cut across five lanes of traffic to get the oh, exit yeah. that they almost yeah. missed.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, so this is so, where it, it confuses me because here in when I go to Jersey, the people f- drive like that. They they drive like ninety-five, but in your area you said the cops drive just that fast. But in Jersey The cops will freaking pull them over all the time, but they still drive 95. So I don't understand the whole thing.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I have been a passenger in vehicles in um, Kunsan in in South Korea, and I was like 18 at the time. And I had to close my eyes to actually sit in that cab to go like two towns over because of how crazy our driver was and how crazy all the other drivers were. I've driven a car in third world country. I've driven a military jeep in third world countries where I absolutely did not care if my vehicle got hit. And they were crazy. And then I come to Dallas and find out what bad driving actually is. <laughs> it wasn't bad until you found Dallas. Check oh, out man.
4: Fluffy's routine on driving in India. <laughs> oh man. Gabriel Iglesias. Uh-huh. He's got an incredible uh Routine on his visit to India. I'll check it out. Speaking of check it oh, out.
0: Yeah, speaking yeah. of, let's head down to that. Let's do that. So I came, a couple, uh, I came across a couple of links. One of them has nothing to do with Linux and has everything to do with JavaScript, but I thought it was really interesting. And its tagline is, are you smarter or can you beat? One megabyte of code in chess. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, so I, I think, uh, oh, I'm sorry, not one megabyte, one kilobyte. Uh, so this, the entire chess game is written in one kilobytes worth of JavaScript code. And so that, that makes the engine or, or the brain, if you will, uh, not that great. So I've seen people liken it to an ELO. Uh, so this is the, the ranking system in, uh, in, I guess, like chess in general. I mean, there's a lot of uh, competition that uses ELO. But it was it, essentially novice. So like a, a 2,000 ELO, 2,800 ELO. So it's, it's not good by any professional chess player standard. But I could only consistently beat it about 30% of the time. I do not consider myself a good chess player at all, so that that gives you kind of a a general idea. But I challenge anybody that's listening to this show, go try and beat Kilobyte's Gambit, and let me know how you fare. Do you win? Do you lose? Was it close? Was it just a full blowout?
4: I am so rusty. I remember the old DOS chess games, and I couldn't beat those, so...
0: Yeah, so back back in the day, oh, the monster chess. I ones? played.
4: Uh, I played
0: Chessmaster. Uh, I still have that music in my yep, head just one. as much as Tetris, yep. and I could beat the easy mode. After that, nope, just I would get destroyed. And so I guess I've gotten a little bit better. Uh, I can I can beat kilobyte maybe about a third of the time, but man, still sometimes I just make these like boneheaded moves, and it, there's no undo button, so it's just you just you just stuck with that move, and you just you get to feel the weight. Of, uh, of, of that dumb move for the rest of the game. <laughs> the other thing I found was, uh, I don't know if it's naughty or nodey, but uh, this is a really cool application that will monitor any kind of thing that you've got going on in the terminal, and then it will um, send a message to something like Slack or, or uh, Telegram to let you know that it's done. So if you've got a command that you know is going to take like an hour... You can use Nodi to notify you when it's done after you've walked away from your computer. So I think that is fantastic. It's, it's amazing. I want to uh, I start using this for myself, and we'll see how it goes. Bo had something called Noise Torch that is a uh, noise suppression application for your microphone in Linux. Um, but you know, we're going to take this into the next episode because I want to hear what he has to say about this one.
4: So, Moss, what do you got? Okay, I found that JingOS, a phone-slash-tablet-Linux-OS, which aims to replicate iOS, announced they will not release version 0.7 and will instead release version 0.8 on March 31st, claiming it will be a full-featured Linux and in the future will be releasing as OTA. It looks great. Hope they can pull it off. For all you Mandrakers out there, r 11 is also out. This fork is by the Russians, who were co-developers of the last official version of Mandriva, and is the base for OpenMandriva LX. I do not myself recommend ROSA. If you're more of an enterprise user, ROSA Enterprise Server is a fork of RHEL. And listener Dylan Berger asked the DistroHopper's team, what one feature would you ask to be added to your daily driver distro? We're saving that topic for a future show, but we did hear it.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm actually pretty excited to answer this one. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we'll make a whole show out of it. It's going to be good. All right. Well, that'll do it for the show. Our next episode will be at 2 p.m. Central U.S. time on uh, March 21st, 2021. And uh, we've got a link for you and everybody else. Uh, to get that converted to your own time zone so you don't have to rack your brain with horrible, horrible time zone math. So, Joe, where can we find more of you outside of the show?
2: Well, you can catch me on a couple other shows. I'm on the uh, Linux Link Tech Show. That's www.tllts.org. I'm on the Linux Lugcast. We just recorded this last Friday, www.linuxlugcast.com. You can find me on MeWe, or you can send me a message, jb at jb.mincast.org.
0: And Bo's not here, but uh, you've got uh, the Undercast Collective on YouTube. We've got a link in the show notes. Um, and also Crowbar Colonel Panic, which Josh will likely shout out, too.
4: So, Moss, what about you? Check your show notes. Everything is linked. We've got It's Moss. We've got MeWe. We've got several blogs. We've got music on Bandcamp and on various YouTube channels. I'm at Zyvola at HostTux.Social on Macedon. Zyvola at ProtonMail.ch and sponsors. And I'm really grateful for my sponsors.
3: Yay.
0: And Tony Hughes had to cut out not feeling amazing today, but you can get him on HPR with host ID 338. He occasionally blogs at Tony-Hughes.blogspot.com. Get him on Twitter at TonyH1212 or TH at mincast.org or DistroHoppersDigest at gmail.com. Tony Watts,
3: TW at Mintcast.org, or just search up Echoes of Savages. Josh, what about you? You can email me at joshontech at mintcast.org, and you can find me on most social sites at joshontech. And uh, now you can find Crowbar Colonel Panic on Spotify at least, hopefully soon to be on every podcatcher at the uh, website uh, crowbarcolonelpanic at Uh, firesite.fm. Nice. The, uh, so I, I looked into it.
0: You have to check the box. You, you have to go into Fireside and basically tell it, yeah, I wanted to post to these particular services.
3: I'll have to mention that to Bo. Cool. Mike, what about you?
5: You can email me at Grouchym at pm.me or hit me up on uh, Discord at Grouchym. I'm always bored during work and looking to chat, so feel free. Hey, hey, and he's special and green now, so he gets all the cool stuff. Yay.
0: <laughs> As for me... LeoChavez.org and at Leo Chavez on Twitter. Uh, Leo at MintCast.org if you need to email me. LinuxUserspace.show for my other show. Full Circle Weekly News for my other other show. And if you want to support me, you can buy me a coffee. But before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make MintCast possible. Owen Peary for our audio editing. Josh Lowe for all his work on the website. Hobstar for our logo. And Londoner for our time Sync and all of the links that we get most of the time. ByteMark Hosting for hosting Mintcast.org in our Mumble server. Archive.org for hosting our audio files. HPR for our backup Mumble room. And, of course, the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love talking about every fortnight. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem.
3: And go!
4: This has been another episode of the Mintcast Podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mintcast.
5: likely to happen before the next show that Joe gets arch fully installed on seven different machines or I get a stable Wi-Fi connection for once.
2: <laughs> I'm really sorry about that today. That was awful.